our Advent wreath, um, the first candle. And we take time as a church during the Advent season to step out of our normal series and, and address uh, topics related to Advent. Um, it's, I think, an important part of the Christmas season and kind of addressing our hearts and preparing for the wonder of what Christmas represents, that God became flesh, um, and all that that means and all that comes with it. Traditionally, during Advent, the topics of love and joy and peace and hope are addressed. This Advent, actually, I want to take all four Sundays to address the topic of peace. I want to talk about peace, and I want to look at what the Bible teaches us about peace, so we'll kind of make our way through through the, the whole Bible, um, a lot in the Old Testament, because Advent carries with it this sense of waiting for, for Christ to come, to, uh, to live here, for God to take on flesh, and so we'll be in the Old Testament. And what I want to do in, in this series is look at the different aspects of peace. So there'll be four messages, one called Peace Lost, that's today, uh, Peace in Paradise Lost, Peace Pictured, Peace Provided, and Peace Personified. You don't need to remember that, but we'll look at those four aspects. And this theme of peace is an important one, regardless of the Christmas season. Um, it is an important one, I think, that we all feel and we all encounter as humans living in a world that is at many times, in many ways, not at peace. The famous Christmas carol, uh, uh, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, is originally a poem written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It was written by him after he had experienced some very unpeaceful things. Uh, and I think the year was 1861, his dear wife uh, died in an accident. She caught on fire working with sealing wax, uh, and she ended up succumbing to her injuries and dying. And then the next year, his son was uh, seriously injured in the Civil War. And so he wrote this poem in light of those tragedies, in light of just the struggle for where is this peace we sing about? And so listen to these words. I think they're on the screen. You can follow. He, he wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in the fourth stanza he says, Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then in his final stanza, a note of hope, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So we're going to look at this topic of peace, and we're going to look at how the Scripture teaches us about it, and, and the Scripture gives us answers about peace, really what it is, and why we don't have it, why we have it, and so forth. So we're going to begin in, the, in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at chapters 1 through 3, so it's very, uh, very uh, best if you have a Bible in your hand, because I'm not going to be projecting all the verses, I'm going to ask you to follow along. Um, if you don't have a Bible, if you could maybe raise your hand and someone could get you one, we have some Bibles in the side here and so forth, and 
if the ushers could just be ready. Anyone need a Bible in their hand that doesn't have one? One, one over here, Jason? If you could, thank you for taking care of that. Um, just so you can follow along. And by the way, that's always good to do on a Sunday. I, I don't mean to feel, make you feel bad if you, if you don't have your Bible, but um, we're gonna project, I'll project things normally to help you, but it's, there's nothing that beats having it in your hands and getting used to your, your Bible, having it be really one of your best friends. Um, so let's pray and ask God to teach us through His Word as we'll look at Genesis 1-3. through Lord, thank You for Your Word, and thank You, Lord, that this struggle with wondering about peace, wanting peace, but, but knowing that we don't have it, we live in a world that is awful, often unpeaceful. We thank You, Lord, that You don't leave us to struggle, but You give us instruction through Your Word and an answer through Your Word. So I pray You'd help me, Father to teach and proclaim Your Word and Your truth in a way that we could hear from You and we could understand about peace, the losing of peace, but also the hope of true peace that You offer. So be here with us and help me. And Lord God, teach us and glorify Your name through it, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. I'm just going to read sections of Genesis chapter 1 and then again as we go through it, I'll touch on different aspects of the three chapters. It says in Genesis 1, 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then jumping to verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Here we see in Genesis chapter 1, the wonder of God's creation. God shows up, there's the earth, and uh, there's lack of order. There's, uh, the earth was without form and void. There's, there's not order. Things are not fully formed. Uh, and there's, there's this creation of sorts that's there, and yet God is brooding over it, and then God begins to create. He be- begins to bring order. He begins to, to create um, different aspects, different regions of His creation, and then He fills those different regions. And you see through the, the whole of chapter 1, God doing the same thing. He is, he is speaking. He says, let there be light. Or whatever it might be. And there is light. And then He separates it. Uh, and He brings order. And then as the, the story progresses in chapter 1, He fills those different regions. So, so He creates the sky. He creates 
light and darkness, creates the sky, and then later He fills it with stars and, and the moon and the sun. He, he fills it with things. He creates the sky above the earth and then He fills it with birds. He creates the land, separates the land, and fills the land with animals. He's already filled it with vegetation at that point. The point in this story is to recognize that God is the Creator of all things. They come into existence by His hand. There's purpose in it. And it's called good and very good. There's no evil here. There's no good and evil kind of yin and yang in creation somehow struggling together. There's His perfect creation that He's formed. By His Word, He's spoken it into existence. And He fills it. And it's good. It's very good. So he, he makes creation this way. He makes these realms. He fills them. And then uh, He puts mankind over the whole thing. And mankind is made in the image of God. The very image of God. So mankind is, is in a sense, God's representative over creation. And mankind is to enjoy creation and all of its splendor and to rule over it. To have dominion over it. To kind of rule in God's under God as, as really kings and queens. That's, that's the picture here of mankind being put over creation. It's not mankind being subject to creation. It's not mankind merely being another component in creation. It's mankind created over creation. And God repeats after each time, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then after He makes mankind male and female, what does He say? It was very good. That's the picture. Original creation. Full of glory. Full of goodness. Full of good things. Creation itself is good. Creation is not evil. The biblical testimony is that creation is good in its original form and very good with mankind ruling over it as the representative of God, as the imagers of God, both male and female. And, and so we understand that creation is good. Things like food. Food is good. Beautiful sunny days are good. Rainy days are good. The oceans, the beach, land, animals, trees, gardens, herbs, flowers. These are all good. And our bodies as made by God are good. And, and the physical and the spiritual are together as well here. There's no, there's no physical, spiritual duality. There's no like spiritual is good and physical is bad here. Your spirit is good, but your body's bad. There's nothing like that. Together, this is all good and very good. And there's a lot that we could say about that. Um, just understanding these truths about creations, these doctrines of creation is so important. And there's so much that follows from it. And there's so much that we can get wrong and cultures and our culture gets wrong here. I don't have time to get into all of it. But to see that it's good in its original form. It's very good as mankind rules over it. And, and there's, no, there's no qualification, there's no reservation about God's enthusiasm about His creation and His enthusiasm about mankind created to rule over it. There's an enthusiastic endorsement of creation with mankind at the apex by God. That's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 1. And, and we see in it really real peace. This is the peace that we long for. This is the peace that creation was created 
to display and to enjoy this, this perfect order, this harmony. Where here in the original story, everything is, is operating as it should. All of creation, all, all of what we would call nature is working properly here. And mankind is working properly over it. It's peaceful. It's good. It's very good. And I think this is part of why we love nature. Because it's made in its original form as good and we get a, a taste of that when we're out in creation. When you're there and you know, you're taking a hike uh, on, a, on, a, on a mountain somewhere and seeing the vistas and just kind of taking in the fresh air uh, in the autumn, just seeing all the glorious leaves and all these things. Now, that's part of the peace that God built into His creation that we long for. And I think that's part of what we're doing in the sense when we go out and take those hikes, we're longing for that peace. We're longing for the new creation, really. Going out fishing on a, on a lake in a beautiful morning. Hearing the rhythm of the ocean at the beach. These sorts of things all come from this innate longing built into us. All of humanity. For this peace that we were created for. That's just chapter 1. Chapter 2 is, is a kind of a magnification of the, of the sixth day of creation and getting into the aspect of mankind more in depth. And, and in chapter 2, we see God creating mankind and putting him in a garden, uh, the Garden of Eden. And that word garden uh, isn't... like When we tend to think of garden, maybe we picture, and it's probably the, the fault of all the, some of the artists and stuff who draw this picture of this garden with, with you know, it's like a tropical forest. And, and that's how we think of it. But the word garden actually to the original hearers of this, would have been something very different. It would have been like a royal garden. It would have been a garden that a king kept. It would have been a walled garden. And actually, we can see reason here uh, to believe that there is a wall actually around this garden. It's a walled garden, and in that garden is, is all sorts of vegetation, uh, all sorts of trees, um, all sorts of fruitfulness and abundance, and yet it's, it's a defined area. It's a royal garden. And as we read chapter 2, we, we learn about this wonderful royal garden. Uh, and God makes mankind and puts them in the garden. And this garden is full. Uh, it says, And the Lord God planted a paradise in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. In verses 8 and 9 in chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for fruit. The tree of life was in the midst of the paradise, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we'll talk about that shortly. So this is a picture of this glorious royal garden that mankind was put in to dwell there, to enjoy. And we learn in chapter 3 actually that God Himself walked with the man and the woman in the garden in the cool of the day. So this is a royal garden that's just glorious in and of itself, full of every sort of tree and every sort of vegetation you could want. And it's not just like a park to kind of just enjoy the outdoors. It's a place where God dwells with mankind. And by the way, mankind has been commissioned to subdue the earth, the entire earth. So the, the implication is this, this walled garden is to be expanded to include all of creation, all of the earth. That's the mission originally given. Make the whole earth like this garden. And so God walks with man in this royal garden and it's just a glorious place of full of peace. Can you imagine the God of the universe, the infinitely glorious God who, who dwells in 
unapproachable light. He, he is in His glory, cannot be fully seen, fully known. And yet He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. They have a friendship with God Himself in this garden. And there's peace. Creation is at peace. God is at peace. Mankind is at peace. And Genesis chapter 2 actually goes into more detail about uh, mankind. It, it explains how uh, the woman is made. And that God, uh, there's no suitable helper for the man. None of no other cre- creature in creation can be a suitable helper for the man. And so in chapter 2, God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep and takes out of his side a portion of who he is and forms the woman and then brings him to the man. And it's a, it's a wonderful story here. The first poetry in all of history is uttered spontaneously by this man uh, in Hebrew. It's loosely translated, wow, she's amazing. And so this is a picture of of this first man and woman living in peace with each other. In joy. The husband just being amazed that this is my helper. Wow, I can't even... This is incredible. And and the woman coming alongside the man to, to help him and to walk with him. That they would walk together and image God together as male and female. So it's just a fantastic picture. A fantastic picture of peace and and God's original intent in creation. This this garden, this world garden, is just full of all these trees and and the major four major rivers of the region flow out of it. So it's a a place that, that blesses and flows out to the surrounding region and waters the lands around them. It's an amazing place of peace. And that's where we get the word paradise. The word paradise is actually garden in Greek. That's what paradise is. It's royal garden. That's the word they used for royal gardens was paradise. And so this royal garden is a place of, of glory and goodness and peace. And it's really what we long for, isn't it? Um, we, we had a garden actually when we lived in Maryland some years ago and, and the previous owner had um, done a lot of things to make the yard beautiful. Things that we probably never could have afforded to do. And we had a, an orchard in the garden, in the yard. And there were 20 fruit trees and, and nut trees in this orchard. And it, it was wonderful. We enjoyed that. And I used to just go sit there sometimes and just kind of sit in the middle of the garden and pray, talk to the Lord, and just kind of take in that little garden. And it's, it was a picture of this garden in Scripture. And, and we all, as I've said, long for this sort of peace, for this sort of place. And it's built in. It's built into our culture. I think it's what's behind a lot of the, the longing that is expressed in, in our pursuits and what we spend our money on and what we do with our time. Uh, uh, home and Garden TV. Does anyone here watch HGTV at all? Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, that, it's just seeing using your home and using your yard to create a place of peace and enjoyment. And it comes from that. that we're made for that. And it's appropriate to do that. And, and I think... Um, People pursue this in many different ways and it can become something where they're trying to create the the peace that they've lost here on earth. And so exotic vacations, dreaming of retirement, things like this. Actually, uh, historically, people have pursued utopias. Uh, A utopia is basically a perfect place, uh, is what that that word means. 
it's, it's a good place, a perfect place. And so people have sought to create, to kind of recapture the Garden of Eden in a sense, here on earth. Uh, the Shakers, the Mormons did this, the Amish have done it. Um, communists, basically that's the dream of communism, creating this perfect place. And Club Med. It's all about creating this place of peace. We long for it. And it's here in the storyline. It explains that, yes, indeed, this is how it was originally made. And there's such a wonderful picture here. And this picture actually fits in the flow of all of Scripture. And we'll get into that shortly. And it's to function in our lives in a sense where we read it and we think, oh, how precious and good that is. If only we could have that again. That should be how it leaves us. It's a peace that's been lost. It's a paradise lost. But it's a picture of, of that original paradise for us to see and to long for and to look to God for. For God alone can restore the peace we long for. And that's what this storyline's about. But first, we have to jump into chapter 3. A very sad chapter. A low point in the whole Bible in a, in a low point in, in all of cosmic history, perhaps the, the worst day in history, though I think the day Christ was crucified was the worst day, but, but the next to worst day is this day. And what happens in this day is peace is lost, peace is turned upside down. They're in the garden and a serpent shows up. And we know from the storyline as we read further into Scripture that this is a real animal. It's, it is indeed a serpent, but it's... Uh, it's manifesting Satan himself, the, the enemy, the opposer. The opposer of God, the opposer of God's people. He's called the old serpent in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And, and Satan shows up in the form of a serpent and he tempts the woman. And it's, an, it's interesting to note what happens here because the created order is that mankind would rule over all of creation. That mankind would rule over the animals. And within mankind, God puts the man as the, the loving head of the wife. The wife is the helper, working with him, but supporting him, submitting to him. And then they are ruling over the animals. What happens in this story in chapter 3, it all gets turned upside down, right? The animal now is tempting and ruling over the woman, and the woman is then ruling over the man. The man follows the woman who follows Satan, and they together fall. And by the way, God never gives in to the upside down order. When He goes to address them, He brings them back to the order that He had instituted. So this is a failure of the man and the woman, and certainly Satan himself. And so what does Satan do? How does he get at Eve and therefore get at Adam? He tempts her by telling her that God isn't who you think He is. God has created this glorious royal garden and He said you can enjoy everything here. All these trees. and This is an expansive garden. All this stuff is for you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to take care of your needs. And I'm going to actually commission you to, to spread and take over the whole world and fill it all and make it all a paradise. That's the goal here. That's your commission. I'm for you. I love you. There's only one thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in that garden, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And they are real trees, but they also are sacramental trees. They represent a deeper mystery. One, eternal life. Eternal immortality with the Lord. And the other, the knowledge of good and evil. And in particular, how do we understand what good and evil is? And the implication here is that we understand what good and evil is not by doing it on our own, but trusting in God and His revelation and His Word. And so to eat of that tree is to say, I want to know good and evil. I want to be self-determining. 
I want to be my own person. I want to find good and evil on my own. That's what's going on there. So God says, don't do that. Satan says, God is a killjoy. Obviously, he's not wanting you to know good and evil. He wants to keep the best from you. He lies about the nature of God. He gets Eve to believe that God is somehow not good and not glorious. That His ways are not best. That somehow there's, there's a, a trick. That God is Himself deceitful. Why would He withhold this good thing from you? Look at the tree. It's, it's, it's a great tree. Wonderful fruit. Nothing about it being an apple, by the way. It's a wonderful fruit. So take and eat it. Don't let God withhold things from you. That's what Satan does. And you know what? That's what he continues to do to this very day. Every temptation to sin, every temptation is rooted in the same lie. God is not good. You can't trust Him. And every time we sin, that's what we're saying. You're not good. I can't trust you. That's the same temptation. And that's what works with Eve. She gives in. Her husband's right there with her, by the way. He's silent. They've been instructed in God's Word. They, they know they have what they need, and yet they still fall into temptation. They still give in to the enemy and his lies. They believe that God isn't who He is. And by the way, just a, an application here. I just would want to ask, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about His character? What do you believe about His ways? Do you think that He's a killjoy? Do you think that, that the things that he prohibits somehow, you know, there's some hidden good thing there that's worth it? That he's withholding something from you? Do you believe that? Or do you believe what is true about him, that he's good and all his ways are good? And when he says don't do that, it's because he loves you and he's good. When he says wait to have that, it's because he loves you and he's good. When he says you can have this freely and enjoy it, then freely enjoy it because he's good and he loves you. My brothers and sisters, what you think about God determines really who you are and how you live. And if you are struggling, and, and if you are in the place maybe you're not following Jesus, that's the core issue you need to get at. And I pray that God would reveal Himself to you that it's a lie, that He is good, and His ways are good. And you can trust Him and follow Him. There's life in knowing who He is. He is not a killjoy. He is the ultimate joy. If you want true pleasure, true success, true wisdom, true love, true peace, it's found in Him. Don't fall for the devil's lies. Well, Adam and Eve, they fall and they plunge humanity into misery because they, they were there as our representatives. They are the, the, the champions of humanity. They are the perfect human beings. They're, they were the best that humanity could ever offer because there was no sin. There were no pressing trials and circumstances or, or anything. They had everything. And in that context, they still chose to disbelieve and disobey. And so when we read the story, uh, certainly we should see the tragedy. Oh no, peace was lost because God said as soon as you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And death is to be cut off from relationship with God and to, to die to experiencing true peace. That's when disharmony comes in. They died spiritually when they did that. When they determined they would live life on their own terms, finding good and evil on their own terms, they broke their relationship with God and humanity was plunged into misery through a broken relationship with God. We are broken people because we are not in harmony with God. That's the problem with humanity. That's why there's no peace. Our relationship with God 
is broken. And that's what they introduced, but we would have done the same and they were our perfect representatives. So you and I would never, not have done any better. This is the best humanity has to offer in and of itself. And in their fall, they introduced this brokenness that is passed on to each one of us. And they suffer for it. God comes in and, and confronts them. He looks for them. Adam, where are you? And he hides because he's naked. It's interesting that they previously they're naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and they're shamed. Why? Is that because our bodies are not good? They're shameful? No, that's not at all what's going on here. They previously had lived under the, the covenant and care of God. They had lived under God, under His love, and they were protected and covered by Him. Now they're on their own, and so they realize they, apart from God, are unclothed. They're naked. In a sense, His love and His provision and a relationship of harmony was their clothing. And now they're unclothed. They're naked. And they realize it. And that's the reality. Revelation 3 says to the Laodiceans, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And it's speaking metaphorically. Spiritually. That's the reality. Apart from God, we are naked. We, we, have, we have no covering. And that's what goes on here. And they realize that, that they're naked, that they're vulnerable, they're on their own. And so they seek to clothe themselves with, with fig, fig leaves. It's, it's pathetic. They, they try to make it work somehow to cover their, themselves. Somehow to hide their vulnerability. To hide who they are left alone. And the reality is, guys, ever since mankind has been sowing fig leaves to hide our nakedness, our need for God, our emptiness, our bankruptcy apart from God. And, and whether that's a facade of religious works or, or bravado or some sort of idolatry or accomplishments or something, we're always seeking to cover ourselves because we realize our nakedness, our inherent nakedness from Adam and Eve because of sin. God confronts Adam and Eve he addresses Adam first, then he shifts to Eve, and then he blame, then to the serpent. It's interesting, each one blames the other, right? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on, as they say. The serpent is, uh, he doesn't have anyone to blame, and his le- he, if you know the storyline. <laughs> Sorry. How many times would I get to say that dumb joke, though, you know? So I had to take advantage of it. And each one is... Um, is addressed. It's interesting to notice, and I don't have enough time to get into it, that, that Adam and Eve are actually not cursed. Things that connect to their lives are cursed. But Satan himself, the serpent, is cursed directly. He's cursed, and now he must grovel on his belly uh, as the animal form, but as a picture of God's curse ultimately on Satan. Eve, previously called to be um, the helper of Adam, uh, and part of that, that she would have the privilege of bearing children, um, the wonderful, glorious privilege of bearing children, as God would give them children. Now that childbearing comes with extreme pain. That came in the fall. That wasn't the original plan. Um, and it makes me glad that I'm a man, that I don't have to go through that. I've seen labor four times. And uh, I had a headache in one of, our, one of the times, and I actually took some aspirin, took some Tylenol to feel better. And, to this day, my wife still gives me a hard time. <laughs> you wimp. I'm going through labor and you have a little headache. Um, that's part of, of 
of the curse uh, of sin is, is Eve's childbearing. Uh, it's interesting too also uh, as he addresses Eve, he says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Originally, the, the design is this loving partnership with the man as the leader and the woman supporting him and submitting to him, them doing that together in perfect harmony. And now it says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word desire doesn't mean it's not you'll love him to death and he'll, he'll abuse you. That's not what it's saying. It's the same word that's used later when it speaks of a sin's desire for Cain. The same word, desire, in the Hebrew, which means basically a craving for control. And so Eve, you will crave to control your husband and he'll dominate you. That's the curse from this. Broken relationship, the most fundamental human relationship is broken here. And you will want to control him and he will dominate you. That's, that comes with this. And then Adam, he's cursed in his labor, in his work. And where before it was pure joy, just think like being able to do things and not to, not to feel uncomfortable, not to have any back pain or anything like that. You just do your job and work hard and it's all joy and glory. That was the original plan. And now it, there's pain, there's sweat, there's uh, the hard ground to deal with. That's what comes with sin. Peace is lost in vocation. Peace is lost in relationship. In marriage. Peace is lost in all these ways. And then they are cast from the garden. They're put out of the royal garden. So, so peace is lost in relationship with God. They are now estranged and must wander the earth and deal with creation apart from God's original plan and apart from a relationship with God. And the storyline of the Bible just shows how this perpetuates throughout humanity, throughout history. This brokenness that we experience. Peace is lost in chapter 3. But even while peace is lost, there's amazing hope offered here. Third point, there's peace promised. Even as God is dealing with Satan and Eve and Adam and what He says, He is also, he is also giving promise. And one of the first promises in chapter 3, verse 15, as He's speaking to the, to, the, to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. And certainly this speaks of humanity's relationship with snakes in general. But even more importantly, it points to the ultimate human's relationship with the ultimate serpent, Satan. That the offspring, God Himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ, would crush Satan's head through His life. And yet, the serpent would bruise His heel. That this man, the perfect man, would come and and through His life, through His righteous life, He would overcome this broken peace. He would atone for the sin of men and women on the cross, shedding His blood in their place. His blood speaking of full atonement and cleansing. No more penalty for that sin. And a restored peace coming through His life and His resurrection. So through His death and His life, He did crush the serpent's head. He overcame the enemy and this broken peace. And yet He paid such a cost for it. Satan threw human agencies, Roman and Jewish leadership, bit his heel and he, he died. He suffered on that cross and died. He died in our place. He had to go through agony to pay for our sins. He had to go through, through 
the equivalent of billions of hells basically on that cross bearing the holy wrath of God for our sin. So He is the fulfillment ultimately of this promise given right here. And, and just to see the, the goodness of God even in this tragedy giving us promise that there would be an offspring who would come and bruise the head, crush the head of Satan even though Satan would bruise his heel. There's promise that points to Jesus. There's promise in the naming of Eve in verse 20. She's not previously named. And here she's called Eve. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The promise was death for disobedience. Death for eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, her name in it has a promise of life. That she is to be the mother of the living. And that points to the ultimate living, the ones who would experience restored life, eternal life. And God's pursuit of mankind starts at this point throughout history. He's always pursuing a remnant. Though mankind runs away in their brokenness and their sin, and though you and I run away, He runs after us to bring true life. And so the storyline is, is really God running after humanity. First through individuals, then through a nation, then through Jesus, and now through Jesus to the whole world to run after us. That the, that the living would find true life. Promise even in her name. There's the promise of atonement here. Because they are naked and ashamed, and so they cover themselves with fig leaves. And what does God do? Does He leave them with fig leaves on? He clothes them, doesn't He? It says that, that He clothes them. And what, what are they clothed in? Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for His wife garments of skins and clothed them. Where did the skins come from? Animals. There's no mention of the death of animals until this point. It's implied, of course, here. And it's a picture, certainly, of atonement. Remember, this is first heard by the Jewish people. They've been delivered from Egypt. They're in the desert. The tabernacles is set up. It's a place of worship. And so in that context, they're actually sacrificing animals. So they're hearing skins, sacrifice, God's provision for Adam and Eve. So God does not abandon them. He provides for them. He covers them with skins as a, a temporary covering to cover their vulnerability. Pointing towards the ultimate covering of Jesus Christ and His life sacrifice for us, for our sins, and then His righteousness now being our spiritual clothing to wear and no longer be vulnerable, but to be safe and secure and accepted in the Lord. This wonderful promise is here. And there's a promise of re-entering the garden as well. They're cast from the garden. They're put out. Um, they, they can't dwell there. They're put out of the garden. They can't eat of the tree of eternal life, for that would be eternal misery, to live eternally separated from God. So that's kept from them, but they're put out of the garden, and there's a cherubim who's there with a flaming sword to guard the garden, the entrance into the garden. And then which cardinal direction is that entrance? North, south, west, or east? It's east, isn't it? So now remember, this is the Jewish people listening. It's a royal walled garden. There's an entrance on the east. There's a cherubim with a flaming sword there. What, what structure did they have that had a cherubim, cherubim represented in it, had the main entrance facing the east? The temple or the tabernacle. So even in being cast out and describing being cast out, God is connecting to the temple. 
And a picture to the people of God who lived under the temple system was that I am restoring Eden. The temple is a picture of that walled garden. And in that temple, I make atonement for your sin. I cover your sins. And I provide so you can enter once again. It faces east. There's cherubim, mighty angels there in the temple. So it's a picture of God's redemption through the temple, which is a picture of the ultimate temple who is Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, through His life, now we can enter once again into the presence of God. I read from Hebrews, it speaks of that. Through His blood shed for us, through His righteous life, now we can come into the very throne room of God where those cherubim dwell and worship God forever and be welcomed as sons and daughters into His presence. If the band could come up as I close. It's just a glorious picture of God and His ways. Peace lost. Peace originally created. Peace lost. Then peace promised here. And it all comes through Christ. It's all through His work. It points to Christ and what He's done. He is the one who restores peace for us. I hope that makes sense. And and perhaps in, in closing... Just to think about some ways to apply that. First, just to recognize in all of our hearts is a longing for peace. And in all of the hearts of your neighbors and relatives and friends is the same longing. And that's a touch point for all of humanity. It's a touch point for us because we've learned about how peace is restored. So this Christmas, it's a wonderful time to talk about that peace and just identify that. Identify that reality, that longing for peace that's in everybody and just talk about how you're finding peace. So one application is just to pray, God, use me with somebody this Christmas season to share why I have restored peace in Jesus. Um, I encourage you to invite them to Christmas, invite them to Advent, invite them to Alpha. Another point of application is just to remember that that longing has been answered in Christ. And, it, and we, we have... The peace already. I, I read earlier from Psalm 23. That's part of the inheritance now for us. We can know the peace of dwelling with God. That relationship is restored through Christ. Through simple faith in Christ. Turning away from sin. Turning away from Adam and Eve's choice to say, I'm no longer going to do it on my own. I'm going to trust You, Lord. I'm going to live under You. And when you come through faith to Him, recognizing what Christ has done, you have peace with God. You've been reconciled with God. And, and you now in a sense, live in the garden. God is your friend. He's for you. He works out all things for your good. He's with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And there will be a day when Christ returns, He restores it fully in every way. And so we wait for that. We live in hope. But it's not a vain hope. It's a hope based on Christ's death and resurrection. It's a real hope. And there's real peace that we experience through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Holy Spirit And it's a foretaste of what we'll have in the end. But we're going to celebrate communion in a few moments. And that is a reminder of what Christ has done for us and of the peace that He brings because it's a meal in representative form that represents the final meal as well when we go to be with Him and experience peace forever. So let's just take a minute and contemplate before the Lord. how we can apply God's Word. And then um, we're going to pass out communion. And uh, the band will play a little bit. Uh, If you could just help the ushers pass the elements along.
there's gluten-free options as well. Just hold those elements in your hands while you wait, and then after the song, we'll come back and celebrate together. So let's stand together. Um, if the ushers could begin to, to pass, and just let's contemplate the peace purchased by Christ, the peace, the restoration of peace we have in Christ, and then we'll celebrate communion.